Hi, this is Kareth Foster. Welcome to Awaken Nation with Brad Zalas. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a good friend on today, Kareth Foster. How you doing, hon? I'm great, darling. How are you? Good, good. I love it. Well, great uh, considering the world is going to hell. Or, yeah, we're recording this right now when there's um, riots and protests going on, and we're going to be talking about that. We're going to go into this. Uh, but uh, who knew? Uh, you and I have known each other, and I'm not going to say how long. But, uh, since we, we were met, five. Since we were five. Yeah, at least. Uh, we met at a comedy class taught by Tim Davis. And um, all my friends told me, you should be a stand-up comedian. You should do it. So I was so nervous. I, I signed up for the very last class uh, at the Learning Annex to learn how to be a stand-up comedian. It was like, I think it was like September of 98. And you mm -hmm. sat behind me in that class. And we've been friends ever since. We've been on the road together. You remember that, that time we performed where the stage was a door? I... I vaguely remember that. There are some things, Brad, that I try to block out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that might have been one of those shows. <laughs> well, Lisa Lipinelli was in the back of the room. We drove yeah. her. Oh, yeah, so I do remember. So we're going to go down memory lane a little bit. I'm going to read your bio. We're just going to have some fun. And we're definitely going to talk about the work you do today, which I think is extraordinary, and your new book. You can be perfect or you can be happy. It's up go. to you. There you <laughs> go. It's a choice. That's the title of her book. Let me read Kareth's bio. For nearly two decades, Kareth Foster has taken her passion for entertaining and critical thinking nationwide. From the airwaves to organizations, from universities to corporations, creating a seismic shift in mindsets and revolutionizing the way we address issues of diversity, leadership, and personal development. If you can laugh at it, you can get through it is not only her motto, but the invaluable lesson she seeks to instill in others. As a speaker, humorist, coach, TV and radio personality, author, entrepreneur, wife, and mother, Kareth's sense of duty, service along with her riotous sense of humor have made her a positive force of change. The words no and impossible are not in her vocabulary as evidenced by her career path, life changes, chosen adventures, and desires to help others. Kareth is the CEO and founder of Frame, Foster Russell Alliance for Meaningful Expression, and creator of multiple workshops including the Diversity and Inclusion Program, Stereotyped 101, and You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy. She is the author of Laugh Your Way to Happiness, 101 Ways to Have a Great Laugh, and the soon-to-be-released children's book, Leela Finds Love. Kareth, my good friend, welcome to the show. Thank you, my darling. Thank you for having me. I really, it's such an honor. Thank you. Let's talk about your career, and a lot of people, uh, they may not have heard of you, but uh, let's go back to... 
you're a performing comedian in New York City, traveling all over the place, and you get this phone call. And it, it, let's talk about Don Imus. We might as well go into it because this is where your career kind right of right out of the gate, baby. <laughs> do you want to do this or do you not want to do this? So let's set this up for the audience. Sure. So, I mean, just to go a little bit further back, my background, I call myself a recovered journalist because that's what I got my degree in. I worked at a small ABC affiliate in college. My first job out of school was in New York City at The View because I thought, who better to learn from than Barbara Walters, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it was while I was there that I realized just something was missing from my life. I was missing a creative, expressive outlet. And that's where I found comedy, or rather it found me. And it ultimately became this incredible vehicle for television and cruises and traveling around the world. And then, like you said, you know, I was actually headlining in Kansas City, and I get a call from a, a guy who'd booked me years ago, years prior. Hey, you interested in a radio TV opportunity? Uh, yeah. What comic is it? Oh, by the way, it's with Don Imus. <laughs> which I replied, nappy-headed hose, Don Imus? Yeah, tell people what happened because um, this, I, I hate to say it, it, sometimes things that happen in New York City are a bubble. Sure, and people may sure. not know that Dino, Don Imus is, is up there with Howard Stern and, you know, he's kind sure. of famous. So he, I mean, he was pre-Howard Stern. Like, if you actually watch Howard Stern's movie, Private Parts, or read yeah. the book, like, he's, he's featured in there. So he was the original shock job. Okay. So he's pre-Howard Stern, yeah. Right, right. Meaning he, this was the guy who diverted from the traditional, you know, hey, cats and kittens, you know, let's play this, da 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 Because he was, like, speaking his truth and kind of like, saying things that other people were on other people's minds, but they didn't think they were allowed to say, or they weren't even allowed to say at the time. Right. And so he, that's how he made a name for himself. Now, it didn't hurt that he was high a good part of the time he was saying these things. <laughs> that takes the filter down a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but he really, I mean, he was a pioneer in radio. I will give the man that. And, and he was incredibly talented and an, an amazing interviewer. And, you know, he had been fired several times in his career for outrageous stuff or, you know, not being able to function because of his addiction issues. Um, but what, happened in 2007 april 2007 was he made a, a really a major faux pas at the wrong time um he called the rutgers women's basketball team who were heading to the state championship nappy headed hose now this team was made up of mostly african-american women and it was the perfect combination of a really crappy thing to say and a really slow news day and it got picked up and it was a media shitstorm. Oh, can I curse? Yes, you can. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it just was. I mean, there's really no other way to yeah. break. Um, and so what happened was he ultimately, you know, went on the air, apologized for his comments, but it wasn't enough because it really yeah. brought to the forefront the idea that there is this, you know, there's this racism that, resides in media and my issue with the whole thing was as a comic well I had a twofold reaction as a black woman I thought what he said was completely inappropriate you know yeah. as someone who had been a former college student like you know to talk about young people like that to thr yeah. thrust them into a spotlight they didn't ask for that was that was that was kind of cruel it wasn't his intention though his intention was to be entertaining and be a comic. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's unfortunate that, you know, what he said just wasn't funny. Um, but he was riffing. And I got that. I got that as an artist. You know, you don't really get to practice right. until you're out there. Like, that's what happens with us comics. We're on stage. That's how we get our practice is actually doing it in front of an audience. Um, and you try and try and you get your A material. Um, the other issue was that he, um, he just, he didn't even know what he was saying. I mean, this is a man who was 190 when he started, you know? <laughs> yeah. And 237 by the time he was finishing his career. So he, he really had no concept. And I'm not making an excuse for him because it's not. But if you actually really go back and listen, he was parroting what his producer had said, not knowing or understanding the lingo or the language. You know, he was trying to be an old, hip, cool white guy. Yeah. Yeah. And it just backfired terribly. So that's when I got brought in to quote unquote diversify the staff. Um, <laughs> and I knew I was being used like I'm not an idiot. Yeah. But I, I did it because I remember thinking if I don't do this, someone else will. Yes. And they may not be as responsible with this position. Because he, when he and I spoke and we chatted about my coming on, he said he wanted to have a national dialogue about race. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the moment for my, me to have my dream job to be this beacon of light and truth, why I went into journalism, um, to be able to be fun and authentic and entertaining, why I got into comedy, and to, to be the anti-stereotype of what we typically see of a black woman in the media. And yeah. so it was truly, I mean, I, I, I wanted to make a difference, to make an impact. And I thought that was my opportunity to do so. You did. I mean, you, you did a fantastic job. And we'll get more into the details of uh, why you had to leave. But I want to set the stage for our listeners. If you don't know who Don Imus is, uh, he is a New York City phenomenon. Um, older guy with curly hair who wore a cowboy hat in the middle of the city. Made no sense whatsoever. Um, and he covered sports, usually. So um, as Kareth pointed out, he was doing this before Howard Stern. And when Howard Stern actually got a chance to work with Don, um, he basically destroyed him because, you know, he, he felt threatened. And it was, it, you can see it in the movie uh, Private Parts, uh, you know, and, and in the book. Um, so Howard basically came along and destroyed him and they separated Don and Howard, if you know your history uh, about this, a lot of people may not know because some of the celebrities we know in New York City are actually, even though they're nationally syndicated, are just known in New York City. And I would say Don Imus is one of them. So Kareth just set the stage. Don, by the way, has said racial stuff many times before, but this was a day where it was like, okay, we're done. And it is this sort of casual systemic racism the systemic racism that seems almost generational and uh you know like you know i would cringe at my father you know he had all his black friends would all get together with him and he would tell black jokes and they would tell white jokes and i'm like what in the hell is going on <laughs> and they loved each other they but one of the guys invited my dad to his wedding i'm like oh wow that would never fly today it is interesting how we see things kind of happening through the times you know versus you know when we're kind of not kind of we we've been in the age of political correctness right so Right. Obviously, I'm a black woman. Not everybody would know that by listening to me, per se, if they didn't see me <laughs> because of just how my voice sounds. And I get it. And listen, I've gotten a lot of, uh, you know, 
feedback on that. <laughs> My favorite is when you go on auditions and what did they say to you? Oh yeah. No, I would go. Well, and the thing is I, you know, my agents would send me out for roles for clearly African American roles. And one drug, but I drug dealer, drug dealer, well, prostitute voiceover stuff. Right. And they'd be like, Hey, um, can you jazz it up a little? I'm like, <laughs> what? Cause they wanted me to sound blacker, but they couldn't say that. Right. So that's what they, it was like code for black. Like, I'm like, you want me to scat? You know, sometimes I play dumb. Sometimes I'd be like, you know, I can do suburban for you. Will that work? I'm like, dude, I am like a Huxville when that was a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In case you don't know, ladies and gentlemen, and this used to drive me nuts, you'd go on auditions in New York City, and if you read the sheet as to who, what they're looking for, it it sounds like you're reading a racist program at a at a clan rally. Oh my god, it was a we need a black man, this tall drug dealer has to be ghetto. And and I would just look at this stuff and I'd be like, "Oh my lord, the things that they do in Hollywood, you know, to to do commercials and things like this, you your jaw would just drop if you read these daily sheets." And they're asking you to come in and be a little more ghetto. And, and the stereotyping and the pigeonholing. It was just oh. atrocious. And it, obviously, I'm not the only, I mean, Robert Townsend made an entire movie about it called Hollywood Shuffle. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that he just, you know, I mean, he just really understood, like, it was pervasive. And it wasn't going to end. It wasn't no. going to stop. No. It and it wasn't. hasn't. It's, I mean, it's kind of getting better, like, since all of this has happened, since, you know, George Floyd and... Just really yeah. kind of racism being thrown to the forefront where people cannot deny it. Yeah, they um, can't. I know that there are people in Hollywood who are offering to look at scripts of, of black writers, uh, TV pitches, all those things where, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily an audience, not an, well, an audience on the receiving end of, of producing these things before. I mean, you just had to have some serious ends right. uh, to, to get there. So you're working with Don Imus and it's a great opportunity as uh, you know, a, a comedian, uh, it gets you, uh, raises your celebrity status. It gets you more gigs and all this, but what was going on in the background? Well, you know, we were dealing with someone who had a very fragile ego. Mm -hmm. um, we were dealing with someone who was a former addict who, well, not former. I mean, you're still, you're always an addict, right? You're just either right. in recovery or you're, you know, you weren't an addict. Um, he, even referred to himself as a dry drunk, you know, meaning somebody who didn't drink anymore, but didn't go through the steps of recovery, the 12 steps. He didn't, you know, get um, any kind of, of assistance, just cold turkey. So right. I was, you know, these manic episodes, you just never knew who you were going to get. The really great, talented, fun, funny, um, you know, host and person or his evil twin, which I, I refer to, you know, in, in right. the book. And every day was walking on eggshells. And it was kind of like you know, how he, you said he treated Howard. When he was threatened, he, he went out of his way to just be an awful human being. And that's kind of what happened with us. Um, you know, people were telling him, oh, the show's never been better. I was the golden child the first year. I could do no wrong. I was funny. I was cute. I was, you know, the cute black girl. Right. Blonde, and but then he got comfortable and he wanted me to start doing and saying things that I wasn't okay with. Like basically be the voice he couldn't be. Right. And when I wouldn't do that, he got angry and, but he couldn't fire the cute black girl. 
because no. then you can be in the news again. So right. what do you do? Well, you try to make her life miserable, so she quits. This and is I hard. didn't. I refused to quit. I refused right. to quit. Um, but I was only there two out of the three years of my contract. That was rough because he was putting you down. He was treating you like garbage. And the guy is just not bright enough um, to understand that his ratings increased because of you. And here's the other side of this. Um, he wasn't really ever out of the doghouse just because you guys were there. That's what I think was great. And, and you know New Yorkers. They will forgive a certain level of this because it is such a melting pot. You can accidentally say something and you're, you're, you've just offended somebody from French Ghana, you know, and you just don't know. There's so many. Like you and I both know you have to navigate 15 dialects and languages in New York City on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I know oh, how yeah. to say thank you in Chinese or Mandarin and, you know, different things, dialects. Uh, so he really was not out of the doghouse yet. And here he is treating you like garbage behind the, the, the glitz and the glamour. And how did that make you feel? Because that wasn't fun. It was pretty awful. I mean, I, I had never experienced that kind of abuse before. I, I had never even been around it, quite frankly. Um, right. I didn't grow up in a household where there was abuse, thank God. You know, I, I had a very fortunate <clears throat> and charmed life. And I know this. Um, and so to have someone just be cruel for the sake of being cruel, it was so foreign. I think the hardest part, the hardest part was there was no HR in the situation. There was no yeah. one who was saying, you know what, I'm going to handle this. Everyone was like, well, he's a jerk. We know he's a jerk. And you know, I, it, it felt very isolating because I was no longer able to stand up uh, and have this amazing outlet and connection to other comics and artists. Um, I, you know, was waking up at four o'clock in the morning, going to work at six because it was TV and radio at the time. Right. Um, and, and it just felt like it was an abusive situation, which, which I'd never been in before. And I understand how people stay in them because there were good days. There were some days that were amazing and we would right. laugh and have a great time. And, and so you're like, okay, it's getting better. It's get, let me just, if I just do this, I'll make him happy. Right. Right. I was so young and so naive, and I, I took it personally. I could go back again. You know, I lecture every year at Stanford, um, seven years in a row now, at the Graduate School of Business for a course in reputation management. And I talk about how I went in to repair his reputation, but ultimately had to save mine. Right. And, you know, I get asked every year, would, if he had to do it again, would you? And the answer is yes, I would. But I wouldn't take it as personally. I, I would certainly handle myself differently. Like, I thought it yeah. was me. I blamed myself for a good portion of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, when you left, you talked about this in your book, um, and, and I recommend everybody get a copy of this. You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy by Kareth Foster. But you talked about this in the book. You actually had PTSD uh, coming out of this. Um, you know, uh, it just, you were battered constantly. And then when you'd let your guard down, You'd feel happy and then you get battered again. And people don't understand the emotional toll this took on you. You actually had to go to Bali for a little while, right? <laughs> well, I, I was really, I was on the, the verge of a nervous breakdown. I truly, and I, 
I remember thinking, I'm, I'm going to absolutely lose it. And I'm either going to end up in Bellevue or Bali. <laughs> My thought was, yeah. if I'm going to spend that kind of money, I'm going to be somewhere gorgeous. You know? <laughs> there, there you go. I agree. Well, you know, there is this um, part of racism that is in our country. And, um, you know, I, you know me, I, I, I hate racism at all levels. And I, and I, you know, you see the kind of people I hang out with, my wife included. Um, but the thing is, is, you know, I didn't grow up perfect either. You know, I, I saw, you know, and heard some horrific things come out of people's mouths. Right. And when you hear it for the first time, your jaw drops. Like you don't know what to actually, did that person just say that? Did that person <laughs> actually just reveal to me, you know, something? And this happened two weeks ago. I was talking to a retired cop from Pennsylvania and he used a, a racial epitaph that I have not heard in 50 years. And I just, you like freeze. You're like, hey, dude, I'm not comfortable with that language. You know, or it's like, uh, and it's there. But the great part is I think the next generation, it's, it's going away. I, I hope so. I mean, here's the thing. So I do teach and coach and go into corporations and schools and organizations with what I've termed um, in, the inversity methodology, which is right. what I created to really try to revamp how we've been having the DNI conversation because what we've had, well, it, I want to believe it's been well-intentioned. It has not been working. And there, we are dealing with, you know, multiple generations. We're dealing with people from different regions. We're dealing with people who've had different experiences. And right. what I hope is that, you know, people, my job is to open people's minds, to understand why something may or may not um, be interpreted well by someone else, why it would be considered offensive or hurtful. Right why it would cause pain or discomfort. Um, and again, you know, so much of it is the intention. Is it that people just don't know or they don't care? Are they just horrible people that will <laughs> never be, you know, they'll never be a, a change. Um, but if we don't come to the table trying to have a conversation about this, we're doomed. Um, yeah. We're we doomed. have, to, we have to at this point. And, you know, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, white privilege. And when I first heard this term, I just went, are you kidding me? I said, I've struggled for every dollar. I've, I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. And then I started to realize it's at this other level. This is where I can see white privilege. And, and I'll tell you this. My ex-wife, for those of you who do not know, is from Haiti. She's a black woman who speaks four languages fluently and uh, has a thick French accent, and um, she never wore jeans or sneakers till she met me. I Americanized her, unfortunately. <laughs> and, but she would go everywhere in Chanel and uh, Donna Coran. I mean, her wardrobe was, you know, your jaw dropped. She, she dressed like a model. But I noticed this. When we would go into stores, I'd go, hey, hon, I'm, I'm going to go over here to the other side and get what I need to get, and you go over and get, and I'll, I'll meet you where you're going to be at. Almost always security would follow her around the store. They would ignore me like, oh, you know, he's, he's the dorky white guy, you know? Uh, and I'd come back and I'd be, I would actually get pissed off because it's like she was being uh, profiled. Mm -hmm. And 
her because she's from French culture and from Afro Caribbean culture, um, she doesn't shop at like certain places. She just won't go there. She's very high end with certain things. So we were we were always going into Nordstroms, um, uh, Macy's, you know, places where we would go to the the best section. So the culture uh, that she grew up in, you know, they this is just how she was and. If you can't spot that this person is not a thug, I don't know what what to say. So there's there's this sort of stereotyping that takes place within the culture and the groups and everything. We have so much um, that we need to learn. I mean, it's just it's yeah. horrible. I mean, there's a lot to unpack, as they say <laughs> in yeah. youth today, with all of this. Um, you know, and it, it it is unfortunate that people have these these biases that they've gotten because they you know they grew up with it they've been taught all of it really from you know whatever it was their families shared with them and taught them to what we've seen in in the media to movies to you know even video games and i mean that's what i feel like part of my purpose and my job is is to go in there and not not berate people for having this bias because we all do but just understanding that when you let these this bias ruled you, you're missing out on opportunities, relationships, and experiences. Well, I like the new show that Tracy Morgan is doing called The Last OG. And the reason I like the show is it is taking the stereotypes and smashing them with a hammer. Uh, because, you know, he comes around the corner and he is just assuming everything's the same way. What's up? You know, and his ex-wife is kissing this white guy and realized they've been married and this guy raised the kids and they have a different standard and he's, he doesn't know how to integrate back into his old neighborhood. And my favorite scene is when he goes up to two young black men thinking that they're thugs and it turns out they're gay and they're like, what are you talking about? You know, they're very, and he's like, uh, 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 what are, and you know how Tracy Morgan is. I love, I love I, he grew on me. It took me a long time to really appreciate his comedy. Mm-hmm. I I sit on the edge of my seat to watch that show because um, when we were raising Sebastian, I helped raise my uh, my ex-wife's nephew, Sebastian. I raised him as my son, but they taught me. I let them take the lead on teaching me how to be a good uncle, but we never watched him. We never let him watch any shows that showed whites are blacks are Latinos in a derogatory way. If we caught him watching any of those kind of shows, he, right. you know, is... TV privileges were taken away. Right. But this was a wonderful moment with us. We were sitting on the couch when he was little, and there were two boxers on the screen, and one was black and one was white. And we said, Sebastian, which boxer do you like? And we're looking at each other, waiting for the answer. And he goes, I like the one in the blue trunks. Yep. And we were like, Yes, mission accomplished. Listen, <laughs> you know, I have, I have two little girls yeah. um, who are biracial. And I have this game, I bought them this game when quarantine started called guess who Mm -hmm. and it's this game where you have like about i don't know 20 people in front of you who look different and you pick a card and one of the card represents one of the people and so you have to guess who the other person what card they have by eliminating things like does your person have glasses on does your person have blue eyes does your person is where your person wearing a hat and i wanted to see how they described the people and every now and then they'll say, "Does your person is your person brown? Is your person, you know, peach? Right? Because those are the colors we use in our house." 
And, um, and I'm so proud of them because they don't just go, is your person black or white? Like, I'm like, yes. Yeah. And you know, to go back to what you were saying about white privilege, like, so I am so glad that you have an understanding of it. I I do have an issue with the word. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, me too. I think that is why it is so hard for some people to digest because when you think of the word privilege, you think of, yes, silver spoon in the mouth. I've gotten more than you. And well, in some instances, that is the case. There are more white people on food stamps and welfare than there are black people. You know what I yeah. mean? So uh, yeah. a lot of those folks are thinking, what do you mean I have privilege? How dare you? I think the word should be advantage, right? There's an advantage. You know, everybody has a certain level of privilege. I have privilege because I grew up with two parents. I am privileged because... I have a college education and degree. I am privileged because I know how to read. I'm privileged because I have access to clean water. Those are privileges, okay? Um, But I got into this very heated conversation about white privilege with my husband, um, who is white, but not from this country. Right. This is such a crazy story. So I was part of a comedy competition up in, I think it's Vernon, New York. Is that Turning Turning Point Casino or Turning Stone? Some casino. The Ladies of Laughter. Right. And it was this competition and I was so excited to be there. Great show. Amazing show. But so wait, on the way there, though, my husband's like, let's take the scenic route. So we're like, okay. So we're driving from New York City to an hour and a half outside of New York. And we're driving through these beautiful neighborhoods. I mean, look like Norman Rockwell paintings. Right. Right. And slowly we start seeing Confederate flags on people's lawns. Oh. And I go, I'm sorry, what, what, what's going on here? I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. But I'm just like, that's interesting. Like, this is yeah. Alabama. It's <laughs> kind of weird, actually. I'm like, do you know well, where you live? What? <laughs> so we get there. So, I mean, literally, there were flags on the way up to this place. And we get there, and um, I you know, end up having a great show. One of my best friends in the whole world, Kelly McFarlane, this, this comic from Boston, wins. And, you know, I did well. I got laughs. I didn't win, which is fine. It, you know, it wasn't about that for me. And so she and I are walking around after the show together. And people are coming up going, oh, my God, you're amazing. You know, congratulating her. And usually, even if they don't like you, you'll get a conciliatory. And you are good, too. You were special. <laughs> you were yeah. good, too. These people, I didn't get a you were good, too. I didn't get a smile. I didn't even get eye contact. I'm like, what the f- what is going on? <laughs> so the, the straw, the last straw was I'm standing in line at the little bakery before I go up to the hotel room where my husband and children are. And I'm standing there in line, just waiting for my turn. And this white guy in a get her done t-shirt just cuts me off and walks right in front of me. Like I wasn't even there. I'm like, okay, this is, and so I go upstairs to my husband. I go, I don't mean to sound paranoid. I go, but I think this place is kind of racist. To which yeah, yeah. the Aussie goes, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. I go, I- I'm sorry. Y- you forgot to tell your mom. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. What do you mean you forgot to tell me? Oh, he, and apparently he, like, dated a woman from that area previously. And, they, you know, her family was pretty racist. They used to drop the N-word regularly. Oh. Go, Dude, I go, that's privilege right there. That's white privilege. Not, not that I could have even done anything about it, but at least I would have been prepared to handle it. Um, you know what I mean? It wouldn't yeah. have been a shock to my sister. Because I don't walk into situations thinking I'm going to be treated differently because I'm, I'm a person of color or because I'm a woman. Like, 
those things to me are not, my bonuses. Not in this day and age. I, I don't expect to, you know you to walk in and people look at you and say, "Oh, you know," right. and even see that. I, I'm right. I'm actually shocked. I mean, it happens. I know it happens, and I'm sure yeah. it's happened to me. But I don't go looking for it. Let me just say that, okay? So we're in the car on the way home, and like, car first of all, worst place to have an argument because no one can leave when you're going right. 80 miles an hour down the highway. Yeah. And we start to get into it about white privilege. And my husband's like, I can't believe you said I have white privilege. I didn't choose to be, you know, white. This is it's not, you're, you're accusing, I go, first of all, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm not blaming you for it. If I had an issue, we wouldn't be married and I wouldn't have procreated with you. We wouldn't have two babies, right? I go, but dude, you gotta understand. I go, you, first of all, you're six four, you got blue eyes, you're pretty good looking. And you have a penis. You won the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory golden ticket in the lottery of life. Literally. Okay. So I go, what my point is, you need to understand you have an advantage. Okay. Right. You're going to be treated differently when you walk into a car dealership than I am. I am going to be treated differently than someone who speaks English as a second language. I go, so just like you need to be an advocate for me, I need to be an advocate for elderly people or for people who aren't from this country, or for people who are part of the LGBTQIA community. Like, that's what this is about, because we have advantages based on what society's norms are. Yeah. So I need you to understand that aspect of it. Yeah, and I want everybody to understand, you know, our ego for the first time is getting hit with it. Well, you have white privilege. And it's like, I grew up poor with my grandfather struggling. Um, he couldn't afford a mortgage, so he built our house. Um, we ate well simply because he owned a restaurant and he would just bring the food home from the restaurant to feed us. Um, we were poor. You know, my grandmother was constantly redoing my, you know, re-sewing my clothes as I was growing up because we just couldn't go buy anything. And then my mom married my stepfather. And so that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that, and, and I just kind of understood this, I can go anywhere in this country Literally. Now, I have gone into neighborhoods in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and I've been called <laughs> some racial things because I'm in an all Puerto Rican neighborhood. Or I'm in an all black neighborhood, but I dare to go there. So because, you know, I see people as people. I don't give a shit. I'm going to go there and have fun and learn things. And uh, but I've learned like, you know, I can skip to work. You know, I made this joke the other day to somebody. I can skip to work and no one cares. When a cop pulls me over, I can argue with the cop, okay? I can, uh, I don't get mad. I'm just like, I disagree with your assessment officer. And he's not going to yank me out of the car and beat me up. Um, I don't cringe, you know, when I have to go into certain situations simply because I'm accepted immediately in this country. But with that said, I do think things are getting better. Despite what the news media tries to tell us. I concur 100%. Yeah, because I am, uh, I remember when I went to see Black Panther in the theater, Sebastian does not usually like superhero movies. He was dying to go see this with me. And I was finally like, yes, my, my nephew wants to see a superhero movie with me. But I heard a lot of people going, finally, we have a black superhero. I'm like, are you kidding me? I bought Black Panther comics in 1965. Don't tell me. That, Not you know, everybody's this, a comic book nerd like I you. Am a, I am a nerd. <laughs> and I remember I got out of work early uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 
And I go, I have just enough time to get to the opening screening of Blade with Wesley Snipes. And I'm, the theater was partially empty. It was sitting in the 10th row, center, big thing of popcorn, my soda. And I'm sitting there going, I can't wait to see this. And the studios didn't put any value on the movie. Like they were shocked that it, it was a box office success. And I, I have to tell you, I never went to see Blade or Black Panther or, or, you know, Luke Cage. You know, I never bought these comic books, watched these movies because they were black. I watched them because I wanted to see these superheroes. And I, I think people think in our heads, all, we're thinking race all day long. You know, my ex-wife and I, Norma, we have a great relationship. We still talk to this day once a week. Uh, but we hardly spoke about race. It was always culture. If we got into an argument, it was always about culture. She goes, well, in my culture, men know how to fix the plumbing and the electricity. What the hell is wrong with you? And I'm like, well, I'm an American. <laughs> I wasn't taught this stuff. I can drywall. You know, I can start your car, but please don't ask me to fix it. You know, it's like... That's where my limits are. So we didn't argue about race ever. And the funny thing is, is when you, and you know this being in an interracial relationship, you aren't thinking my husband is white. It doesn't cross your mind until you come into a situation like you were in where you well, had to argue in the car. I mean, here's the thing. Let, let's be honest. I'm coming from a very different perspective than you. And I think, you know, your approach to these movies wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go see it because they're black. But for a lot of black people, they're like, I'm going to go see this because this is somebody who looks like me. Because I don't see that regularly. Support, That's not yeah. the normal. You know, yeah. it's the same with, you know, when people got excited for, you know, Black Miss America for the first time, you know, Vanessa Williams, because it was such a foreign thing because for so long, Black people had been kept out of those things. Now, yeah. do I think that there should be a Black History Month? I mean, until we can start incorporating Black inventors and pioneers and you know, into regular history, yeah, we should. But do I but, want there to be a Black History Month? Absolutely not. I hate that there is one. I hate yeah. it. But this is this is weird, and this is the part of the conversation where I just kind of go, "What in the hell happened?" I'm a cuss baby boomer. I learned that the very first uh, heart uh, uh, operation mm -hmm. was done uh -huh. by a black man in Africa. Yeah. I this was before Black History Month. I learned this in my regular history class. I learned what the real McCoy was in my yeah. history class. Mm -hmm. Black uh, culture was integrated into it. And then all of a sudden, right around the 80s, after I graduated. I didn't say because it wasn't in my, I had to, I had, I had to take it to my school. I yeah. had to take it to my school because it wasn't in my, and granted, I grew up in Texas where, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, we found out about that two years after the fact. <laughs> yeah, uh, Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I grew up in a uh, public school system, and God bless them in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania may not be 100% Democrat, but they tried to teach that all people were, were inventing and part of history and all these things. Um, and somewhere along the way, they just started separating the two. You know, it's like there was always that controversy of who who went to the North Pole first, you know. Right, right, and right. So, and so, you know, there's that. Then there's right, women. Then. Yeah. And so then there was then there was women. What, what, what did women contribute? Well, they did a lot. So I feel very blessed to grow up where I did where they – these aren't progressive values. It's just – the truth, okay? The, right. I, I'm a big fan of the truth. I'm not here to, 
right. you know, talk about progressivism or liberalism. I'm just saying I want the truth, period. Um, most cowboys were black. People don't know that that was such a rough job. Most of soldiers. Yeah, most guys didn't want to do that. Um, you know, when you hear about uh, uh, in the movie Glory, you know, the, the, they finally let, you know, black men fight in the Civil War. I mean, this, these are powerful truths. Uh, they should just be a part of the dialogue instead of a separate history month. Exactly. Now, you, you, you grew up in Plano, Texas, and you were four, there four, how many, 12 black people yeah, they, in your graduating was, like, class. Literally one person. I was always, always the only black person in any of my classes. And so I, you know, I knew there was something missing or there was more. You know what I mean? Right. I knew there was another world out there and I, I, I longed for it. I didn't know why I felt like, first of all, I felt caught between two worlds. Right. I felt like you know, I wasn't black enough. I wasn't white enough. <laughs> it was one of those, you know, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? And then I, get a, I go to college in Missouri and second semester, sophomore year, I got an internship in Washington, D.C. And this was the first time I saw different shades of people. I mean, people from Africa, from India, from Asia. I heard different languages. It was just, it was this phenomenal awakening and experience. And I, right. I, I craved it. And then I actually didn't end up going back to school in Missouri. I went to England because I did my junior year at Oxford, um, mm -hmm. at St. Peter's College at Oxford University. And this was a really wild experience because England, I wasn't, I just always had longed to be there because, you know, I grew up as an Anglophile a bit, you know, watch Benny Hill, <laughs> BBC, <laughs> um, Are You Being Served, Duran Duran was my favorite. You, you know, you're blowing people's minds right now. <laughs> you do know that. You're like, <laughs> I was going to be Mrs. Simon LeBon, like, you know, <laughs> that was the plan. And so I get to England and it was the most phenomenal thing. First of all, I felt like I just belonged there. Like I was coming home. It was right. the weirdest sensation. Must be and a past life. I, what I realized there, and you know, maybe it's obviously different because we're hearing you know, different reports from Megan and Harry, but I, I was just American there. Like I, this was the first time I didn't have the label as black or African. Yeah. I was just Kareth and I was American. And it was the most <clears throat> freeing, beautiful experience I'd ever had. And now they're classist as fuck. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was one of those things where I'm like, I, I, this is amazing. And I, yeah. it, it gave me a whole other perspective of like what I was coming from. You know, because in Texas, you're, you're black or you're, brown or you're yellow or you're white you know what i mean um and then no, in new york yeah you get to new york and it's like well what are you so that was a question i got what are you i'm a girl what do you mean what are you i'm i'm a black well, no, what are you are you egyptian are you puerto rican are you dominican are you like what are you yeah. check the boxes and i'm like i'm a mutt i am a Heinz 57 yeah. i mean you really true i'm i'm irish i'm west indian I'm Danish. I'm um, I'm Puerto Rican Jew. I'm Cherokee and Blackfoot. Like I am, you know, You're true American. <laughs> I'm an American, exactly. I'm American, right. and I hate that we have to put people into these categories, um, so that other people feel comfortable. Like it, 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 it defies my 
reason, like sense of reasoning. I, right. I don't, I think it's detrimental. Well, it's very interesting. People need to have something they can hook onto with their mind because they haven't been really taught to be a free thinker. Um, getting back to what you were talking about, you know, being overseas, Tina Turner actually said this. She said she couldn't believe how free it was to be in France when she moved to France and places like this because she wasn't a black woman in France. She was a woman, an American. And we have defined everything in America by race and what's your background and all this. And people think that's a good thing. And I do, I celebrate it. I mean, I'm, you know, my family on my dad's side is Hungarian. We love that. You know, we're descended from the Huns. You know, that's what Hungarians mean. Um, but the thing is, is they caught like Bank of America uh, actually asking what race you are when you fill out your bank account. And they use that to double people's, uh, they, they, they just automatically gave them higher interest rates on their credit cards and their loans simply because they checked the box, black, Latino, Hispanic, whatever. You're, you go to Europe and you open a bank account, they do not ask you your race. That doesn't happen other places. So you have to realize in America, we are so into this. We're so, well, what race are you? you know, what box do you fit into? Yeah. It's kind of annoying because if we're trying to step away from race and, and be inclusion, you know, be an inclusive nation, we should get away from this, but we're not. Right. And I think TV has tried to do a good job. You know, uh, I talked to a casting director years, later, uh, years ago, and she had a young Indian woman uh, raise her hand and give her a hard time. Why aren't, you know... Why am I not getting roles? And they go, well, when your ethnic group starts spending money, then we'll see more of your roles on TV. I think it was 10 years later that started happening. Okay. You know, you just, it's where money is spent. That's America. Mm -hmm. Where are the dollars going? Where's the money going? And these corporations, a lot of them right now are pandering uh, because they're losing money. And they know if they don't get on board, and they start saying stuff in their marketing and their advertising, they're going to lose market share and money big, big time. But are they changing their internal policies? That's exactly right. That's what I'm talking to people about. So That's you, what I we, do. We have to demand better because I personally have started nine companies in my life and I make sure every person is heard and included. And I stand in that. And a lot of people in a very subtle way, they just... They don't know they're racist sometimes. They right. just don't know they are. They, they choose this person. There are different levels of racism. Yeah. People think like when you're a racist, that means you use the N-word and you say slurs. Right. You, there, there are different ways to be racist without just being a, a, a mean a-hole. Yeah. Right? There, there are ideologies that can be held. There are misconceptions. There are ways of, of behaving and treating people that you don't conceive of as racist, but the person on the receiving end is like, mm, you're not treating me as your equal. Yeah. And that annoys me. You know, I, I have friends who I've seen firsthand. They're very conservative. As, as soon as a person of color comes up to them, they're like, hey, what's up, motherfucker? And you're like, what in the hell is wrong with you? You know, now they're, they're pandering. They're trying, Just treat the person like an equal. What is, what is going on in your head to make you do that? And I think this is happening at the corporate level now. And I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see how policies get changed in the future. And we're not talking about, you know, 
tokens and, and doing, you know, let's, let's solve this problem this way. It's having a real dialogue in a company, actually creating uh, things that uh, help people see their career trajectory all the way up to the board of directors. Right, right. And, and that doesn't mean everybody's going to take it. It's just yeah. give them the path to that. And by the way, I'm a, I'm a business opportunist. There are things you may not realize that are going on that could make you a ton of money if you sit down with your people of color and shut the hell up and listen to them because there's business opportunities there. You know, that's why diversity is a good thing in the best sense yes. of the word, right? I mean, who doesn't want to diversify their portfolio? Who doesn't want to diversify their market share? Who doesn't want to diversify their audience so they get more? Like, if, if, if numbers is all you're thinking about, then think numbers that way. Yeah. But understand that there also has to be this personal responsibility behind it, a cultural responsibility. Um, and not this is not a, just a check in the box, a CYA move. Yep. And this cannot be one and done. That's probably yeah. the most frustrating thing that I feel when I go in and speak to a corporation. It's that, you know, they want me to come in, have this conversation, and people leave feeling like the way I do it. They leave feeling engaged, inspired, yeah. connected, like really almost high because they're like, wow, we've never been in a diversity and inclusion or a diversity, equity, inclusion session that put everybody on the playing field together. You're not a yeah. victim. You're not a villain. I hate that. I hate but it too. after that, there needs to be follow-up. There needs to be a continuation. Otherwise, right. you're just going to revert right back to where you were before. Well, I started to notice this. When I started dating my wife, I, um, I was very nervous about my family meeting my wife. And, and so, you know, her being a black woman in, in Pennsylvania, and believe it or not, it was an amazing experience. I had nothing to worry about. I did have to tell my dad, this is not an appropriate time to tell racially, you know, charged jokes. He thought this was the time to share. I go, she's not that kind of person, dad. And, um, but I, I also started to realize my father and the, the town were not exposed to, let's just say, higher class uh, educated people of different backgrounds. And so this was like amazing to them. They were fascinated with Norma. And to this day, she'll tell me, you know, her best experiences were getting my dad to not be an asshole. And he did. <laughs> she did. She was incredible. She, she trained him. But this happens um, in a very, very subtle way sometimes. And it's, it's just that people have been exposed to a picture that they need to get rid of and start to see that there are people all over the world that are educated, intelligent, billionaires, things like this. When I, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm the creative director every year for the United Negro College Fund uh, for their big fundraiser every year in March. And I've been doing this for almost a decade. And I got a chance to hobnob with the elite in the black community. I mean, we're talking billionaires, mm -hmm. not just millionaires. Mm -hmm. And people, my experience would make some people um, almost like, no, you're talking fantasy. Well, you know, last year I was working with Robert F. F. Smith this year. I was just going to say Robert Smith, yeah? Yeah. Robert F. Smith last year, um, he donated all his money to Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, uh, the, the giving pledge. And he signed a million dollar check that night. I got a chance to hang out with him. And um, I did all his graphics for when they did his, uh, 
his big award. So I had this this picture of him in the background. You're going to love this. His mom got us this picture of him with his big afro from the 70s. And, and the, you know, the mod clothes, you know, we all lived through it. So I was like, how can I really show this and make this kind of funny as hell? So I got a smiley button and a peace sign and him in bell bottoms with these you know platform shoes and an afro. And he literally goes, who the hell found that? <laughs> I was like, that was me. <laughs> um, but you know, here this is a room where they raised um, 1.2 million dollars in one night, and it's the audience is 99 percent black, and they are from the wealthiest backgrounds you've ever seen. Um, they also have the Black Congressional Caucus that was there as well. So I got to meet uh, all the top people who. Um, fought the good fight in the 60s and marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. So if you are exposed to this, you get to see a higher level uh, mm -hmm. within the community. And now your, your thoughts and what you have in your mind has shifted now. Exactly. Now it's not a, you know, you watch enough TV, you think, well, it's just, you know, my mom, go ahead. Key, you said the key word was exposure. Right. If you don't have any exposure, you're only going to have like the one note of what you think a black person is, a, his a Mexican person, yeah. somebody, you know, an Indian, an Asian, like, or, you know, you're not going to, we are, we are a symphony. We are a symphony. And, you know, it's, uh, why is Alvin Ailey popping into my head? <laughs> you know, reinventing dance, reinventing orchestra, reinventing music and culture and everything. I want to see that happen because that is America. You know, we mash up so many things and make it better. The rest of the world follows us in a lot of different areas simply because of racial diversity. Right, right. We are a very unique place in space. I mean, so many places are hom homogenous, homogeneous. Is that the way you say it? Well, like, you know, Japan or Scandinavia. I mean, yeah, and while those are places are changing a little bit with immigration, there's still, you know, like this culture that's so, I mean, I'm so different from America. And I think yeah. that is part of the attraction and part of the allure and part of the amazing beauty. Yeah. That's what I love about America. I mean, look, look at us. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania and all my friends, you know, they were Pennsylvania, Dutch, German, Irish, all that. But they would all want to come to my house because we were Hungarian. It was different. It was, you know, my mom being Irish American, um, learned to cook Hungarian food. So all my buddies had their fourth meal. Uh, Dieter and Frank would come to my house for the spice. Right, but, right. Um, you know, I, I've just, I love being an American. I love this country. I think no other country in the world is like this. Um, I will defend you to the death, you know, to come here and, and make stake your claim uh, as they say, because that is, is, that's what made America the greatest country on earth. You couldn't go to another country and start over, get a job, buy, maybe you want to buy a series of delis and eventually you own a house for your family and you'll be able to retire and you'll, you have, your own life. You don't get that in other countries, folks. Um, it's only now in the last 20 years you start to see uh, some of these countries be exactly like the U.S. because they see it works. You know, they've adopted it. Absolutely. But 
it's true. You go to uh, China or Japan, um, they do not have diversity like we do. We live this. We, Europe has diversity. Um, we live this. And this is what the Statue of Liberty means when it says, give me your tired, your, your hungry, your poor. It's basically the, the kings of Europe, they put you in a caste system. Well, we'll take those people and we're going to turn them into gold. That's what America is about. Absolutely. Alchemy. There you go. Alchemy. You have a great story where the electric company was supposed to come and they called your mom and said, and warned her. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> my senior of high school, there were 1,200 people in my graduating class, which was enormous. Right. Class. I think it was the largest in the state of Texas at the time. And 12 of us were black. Literally, we were 1%. Wow. Um, I had to import my prom date because I wanted a brown one. <laughs> Seriously, I came up from Houston. Um, <laughs> but... I, you know, I, I grew up sounding this way. My parents, you know, I mean, they grew up in the projects in Camden. You know, they didn't have any money, but education was always valued. And I happen to be kind of a, an anomaly. I mean, I am the fourth generation on both sides to graduate from college. Like, that's unheard of for almost an, for an American family. Forget a black. Yes. Right. Right. So I just, I came from a certain set of, of standards and of, of culture in America. And so, you know, even though my parents grew up poor, they were very well educated. They, 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 you know, just had a sense of self and class and, 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 you know, all, all of those things with that, that come with um, being a quote unquote middle-class person, even if you didn't have the money to go with it, you know, or. Right. And so we get to, well, I'll never forget, we, this is one of my favorite stories. We, we get here to Plano. I was born in, in Denver. And we get here, and this was when you, you would get solicited all the time on a regular telephone. Yeah. And people would offer their services. And it was uh, carpet cleaning. I think it was, I don't remember which department. I guess we can say Sears because they don't exist anymore. Right. <laughs> bankrupt. Right. That's safe. <laughs> and this woman kept calling to say, hey, you know, you'd like, let's set up an appointment to get your carpets cleaned after all the movers have done all their stuff. And, you know, it just it was never the right time. But this woman, and we'll call her Nancy, and my mother developed a rapport. And they would just chat for a little bit and... You know, they knew, she knew we'd moved from Denver. My father worked for IBM. We were in Plano, which was like, you know, the, the nouveau riche area of, of right. Dallas, North suburb. And um, you know, she knew my mom's kids were in private school. My mom had gone to Rutgers, all this stuff, right? So finally, they, they picked a date for these people to come and, and clean the carpets. And they're about to hang up. And my mom, this woman says, you know, Nancy says to my mom, so I just want to let you know, Carol, the people that are coming to clean your apartment or clean your house, the carpets in your house, they're black. <laughs> my mom, without missing a beat, goes, that's okay, Nancy. I sleep with a black man every night. <laughs> she probably just And that's draw, all draw. she said. <laughs> she didn't say anything else. She didn't give an explanation. And the woman was like, well, uh, uh, okay. Yeah. She's like... <laughs> 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 that's hysterical yeah so classic. i you know i have a hundred wonderful stories that norma and i can tell uh, all the time but one of my favorites was i would go hey i'd like you to meet my wife and I'd, she's standing right next to me and there's no one around us and i go this is my wife norma blah blah, blah. and i'd introduce her to this guy and he's like where where's your wife <laughs> like looking around her you know and it's like 
they all expected me to be with a woman named, you know, Karen with blonde hair and blue eyes or something. And it's like, no, this is, I like chocolate. Sorry. <laughs> you know, what are you going to say? I mean, I say like, I'm starting to feel bad for the good Karens out there. I have so many really great friends who are Karen. <laughs> well, I'm getting upset because they want to have the male version of that and they seem to be choosing Brad. <laughs> oh, I thought it was Darren. I heard it was Darren. Oh, Darren's good, but it's not a popular name nowadays. Chad, I'm pushing for Chad. Please be Chad. I love the name Chad. If I had a boy, I would name because I've never met an ugly Chad. Have you? Ever? That's true. They Chad. usually play tennis. Right. And, and drive not. a sports car. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever I go, though, when I say I'm Brad, people go, you look like a Brad. I said, yeah, I do. Uh, I want to talk about the late, great Patrice O'Neill. Mm. And... Uh, I have a great story with him. Also, Joseph Rocha, good good friend as well. I was just looking away. at his Facebook page last night. Yeah, they both passed away, and they were comedy greats. Um, and I've, I've worked with both of them. But I was on the Ricky Lake show uh, years ago, and they were going to talk about um, race and things like this. And so we're backstage, and people don't have the privilege of this, but if you, we had a group of white comedians and then Latino and black comedians, and we're all joking around. And when you're backstage... At a, in the green room, the stuff that's flying back and forth would make people's jaw drop because the, all the gloves are off. People are insulting each other. And I'm just standing in the corner uh, with my mouth shut, you know, and I'm at the end listening to all this. And so all the guys, all the white comedians are complaining about Black History Month. And, and Patrice is just, he's doing one liners, man. He is just clowning with everybody. And all of a sudden it, it got real quiet. And everybody turns and looks at me. We're on that ramp before you go into the studio. And uh, they go, what about you, Brad? I said, well, it's Black History Month in my house every single day. And then they start giving me a hard time about it. I go, guys, my wife's black. And then they were like, watch it. You know, and they go, prove it. You know, of course, it's right. They show a Brad picture because they think I'm lying. And then after that, Patrice grabs me and makes me sit in front of him in the audience because he, the camera is going to be on him. And... I'm right in front of him, and God bless him, he did that on purpose because I was on camera more than anybody else in the group. And I said, thank you, man. And from that moment on, it was the weirdest, fun, uh, funniest thing. You remember he had that big Escalade that he would drive? Oh, yeah, around I was in it many times. He would pull up and go, hey, what's up, man? And he'd just be like this. like He would ignore everybody else but talk to me. From that moment on, it was like I was the, the brother, <laughs> you know? uh wally collins too you know they they would come up to me and say hey what's up man how you doing um and i think it's a trust factor you know it's it's sort of like oh okay we know you've crossed that line and we respect you and and clearly you love your wife and all this so they would always talk to me and run uh stuff by me rodney lane i mean, Lane, good guys. I, mean yeah. good. I was just i was actually texting with wally right before we got on love wally um, um yeah uh, Rodney Laney, we did the road a couple of times. Oh my goodness, we would drive some places, and it was just like uh, oh, the road like, stories. I mean, oh yeah, so many comics should just have like great shows about just what we talked about, you know, on the road and oh, roads, road, road stuff, road gigs. I I did a gig in Pennsylvania where ninety uh, percent of the audience had camouflage on. <laughs> that sounds like so. I have a joke, right about. <laughs> Um, telling, talking about Plano, right? Growing up, and I'm yeah. like, yeah, Plano, where I grew up, has the ethnic diversity of a Klan rally. <laughs> and I swear to God, I said that joke in in an audience, and they applauded. 
And I had to kind of break the voice. I go, I'm sorry. Are you plotting the clan? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, we do. So I need that security to get out of my car. But here's the thing. Guess what? Like in the joke, I make it like a Southern state. Yeah. I was in friggin' New Jersey where this happened. Yeah, I know. It gets a little strange. Uh, and I, I'm, by the way, I'm from Pennsylvania. So when um, I would just talk about growing up there and they would just howl and everything. But I talked with somebody, I'm not going to name names, but because it was embarrassing for him and he was depressed. But um, one of our friends mm-hmm. who's obviously black came back from a gig and he was really depressed. And I said, what's going on, man? He says, you know, I had a show in such and such state in the North. And uh, they invited me back to their country club, and I walked in, and they security threw me out. They said we don't allow blacks. Wow! And I said, and this was only maybe ten years ago. And I said, are you freaking kidding me? And uh, yeah, it's it's just the weirdest thing. Wow! Um, I mean, and that's the thing. It's <clears throat> I think part of why this I call it this great awakening, right? That's happening yeah. right now is such. A shock to so many people's systems is that there are more good people than bad. There, there are, are more people who are not intentionally racist than are. And so when you have this good heart, when you have this idea of, and I hate the term colorblindness, but I, I know what people mean when they say that. While I, I don't think it's the appropriate terminology, because what essentially that means is I also don't see your experience as a person of color. Right. Um, but it's them saying that that doesn't mean anything to me. I, I see, I want to see, I see you as the person. That's what I was raised to do and to believe in what I've imparted on my, in my children. Right. Um, and so for them to see that so much of this is going on, you know, I gave an analogy the other day of, um, I think it was, you and I were talking about this in the, uh, the, the, the movie about quantum physics, what the bleep right. do we know? What the bleep and, do we know? Yeah. And they were, they were talking about how when, you know, the the first Europeans arrived by ship on um, the American, North American continent, the indigenous people just could not see the ships. It was so beyond their scope of, of what was even a possibility. Like, they couldn't right. see the ships. They saw people basically almost like they were coming, just coming out of the water, like a magic trick, right? right. They couldn't see the ships. And that's what I think racism has been like for a lot of white people in this country. And now they see the ships. Now they see the ships. That's a great analogy. Well, they said when, when Cortez showed up with horses, horses are not native to our continent. They, they, you know, we see roaming horses across the Great Plains. They're not from here. Mm-hmm. And so when the conquistadors, Cortez and his men would show up, the horse had armor on the front of it, and then the, the conquistador would be on with an armor plate. You know, this, the natives, when they first saw this, they thought the horse and the man were one. They, they, it was like an alien from another planet, and they mm-hmm. ran away in terror. They had never seen this before. Now, I've had an experience with this, and that is um, you are being exposed to something that you haven't been programmed to see. Right. We're all getting programmed, and there's a great study. You can run this video. It's the, uh, the basketball team and then the guy in the gorilla suit. And basically what they do is they tell you, f- focus on how many times – the, the people in the white jersey pass the ball. And right. if you're focused, you're like, one, two, three. Okay, it's 16 times. And then when you come back, they say, did you see the gorilla? Right. And you're like, what? 
and you go back and you watch the video again, and now you see this guy dancing slowly through the center of the basketball team, and you never saw it. Right. And this is kind of what's happening right now. We are awakening yep. to the things that our brothers and sisters of color have been going through. And a lot of us are not racist, but a lot of us are still rejecting the conversation that we must have. We have to have this conversation. We have to live this conversation. Um, what happened to George Floyd should not have happened. He, sh he just should have been arrested, not murdered. Mm -hmm. And so people don't understand. And by the way, God bless the cops. There's a lot of people out there who do stand and have prayed and Absolutely. have kneeled and had stood side by side. It's one out of how many that has ruined this. But this conversation has to happen. Absolutely. And it finally has happened, which is what I love. As crappy as it is right now and as angry as everybody is right now, I'm happy it, it's happening. Um, you know, I'm starting to see things that have brought joy to my heart. One of my favorite, favorite science fiction uh, novels and series is Dune. And they recently took a, a, a great leap. This is a, they had Jason Momoa, by the way. Oh uh, my God, don't even bring him up. My husband Duncan is like, that's the only person I'll leave my husband for. Duncan, he's playing Duncan Idaho. And if you know the character, Duncan Idaho is a tough guy, a military guy, but he's also a ladies man. And he has all these women and he is so loyal to the Atreides family. They clone him through all the books. So I said, genius move to have him play that. But the second one is Dr. Liet Kynes was played by Max von Sydow in the original movie with Kyle MacLachlan. They chose a black woman, Sharon Duncan Brewster, a British actress to play the part. And I'm like, yes, genius. It, it flips the paradigm. Uh, just a hair and makes it a much more interesting character mm. simply because her daughter is the main character's love affair, which is Chani, which is played by Zendaya. And so mm -hmm. this is a really great step forward. Also, they're going to be doing um, all of the women warriors from the movie um, uh, Black Panther are going to get their own, you know, movies. Wow. So we're taking the steps in the right direction. Yeah. And for those of you who are still cringing about the, you know, what we're talking about, rah, 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 just remember something. If you ever went to another country and you stood there, you would feel incredibly out of sorts. Let's say you went to Italy. Would you stand there and say to yourself, well, they should be speaking English and they should be eating cheeseburgers. You would feel out of place because nothing there would represent you. And that's what it's like to be black in America until now. I thought things were getting better in the 70s because me and my friends, we were underage and we would sneak into those, those black exploitation films and we loved watching them because we wanted to see the guy. He, he always knew karate and it was him against the man. <laughs> and we just, we weren't thinking black and white issues. We were like, that guy's a badass. Let's go see it. You know, so... We were, I guess, naive, Gareth. <laughs> we were thinking in those terms. We just wanted to see this sure. guy beat the crap out of the man. You know, we didn't know what the man was, <laughs> but we knew we had to go watch this movie because it was a blast. I'm one of the few people who saw Sidney Poitier and Bill Cosby in Uptown Saturday Night in the theater. Wow. wow. <laughs> That'll tell you. I just wanted to see movies. Uh, I was into it. So I watched everything. Got to tell you. 
I'm one of those people. So, uh, your new book is coming out. It's coming out uh, a couple of weeks, right? Uh, well, no, June twelfth. June twelfth. Couple. We're we're recording now. Uh, hopefully, I'll have this up and ready uh, for June twelfth, so you can get to know about your book. But yeah. it's uh, you can be perfect or you can be happy. Let's Ooh. talk about how you did this. You are a recovering perfectionist. Uh, are, and you still slide into perfectionism. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know me so well. I do know you. <laughs> uh, I am. I am a recovering perfectionist. Uh, I admit that. My name is Kareth Foster, and I <laughs> am a perfectionist. And you've been on Fox and Friends, and you're, you're going to be talking about this and, and uh, your inclusion <laughs> programs and all this, but you tell some really great stories in the book and I gotta I recommend it to everybody because simply if you're a mother you're a professional woman uh or even guys if you're just uptight all the time you can't relax pick this book up it's funny uh it gives practical advice on how to let that go stop <laughs> just stop yeah yeah no, I you know this book came to me I mean it's been in the making for years let's be honest um but it was something that a friend of mine said to me once when I was going through a really tough time. I was a new mom. I was trying to juggle everything. I was trying to do everything right, which had been my MO for most of my life. Um, and oh, I, it, those words just resonated with me. You know, listen, Kara, if you can be perfect, you can be happy. The choice is yours. Yeah. And it took several years, actually, for that to marinate and be like, oh, my God, I have been trying so hard to be perfect in so many areas of my life, whether it was, you know, as a, a professional, as a friend, as a, as a significant other, as a, as a student, as a child, and at what cost, yeah. you know, the cost of, of my happiness, at the cost of, of peace, at the cost of, you know, just being able to be a, a human being who doesn't feel completely under pressure, who doesn't feel like I am a failure, um, and I think so many of us do this and we don't even realize we're perfectionists. Like, well, we'll maybe say, Oh, it's something else. Like I'm a procrastinator. I'm, I'm lazy. I don't do this. And no, you're actually just trying to be perfect. And because yeah. th there's no such thing as perfection, we end up beating ourselves up over this. Yeah. And so that's what this, this book is. I mean, it's, it's a definitely a book about personal responsibility. Um, but it's also a guide to, to let people just have permission to be human. <laughs> I love the stories in the book. You just had me cracking up. Uh, they're touching. They're cathartic. Um, you talked about doing a ladies of laughter or women's um, comedy show. And this woman came up to you afterwards and just, she said, my, my son died. And this was my first night out in months. And you made me laugh and you guys are all in tears, all of you. And I thought, Oh, this is, this is a great book. And, um, cause I had the, the blessing of being able to help put it together a little bit. And, uh, as a perfectionist, I'm also a recovering perfectionist, but I've learned to go, you know what? I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> I'm going to get this done later or, um, okay. And I never say it's good enough. You know, I have a certain standard, but I've learned to let go because that stress can just kill you. Um, I went to the doctor years ago when I had left my company, um, uh, K2 Design. And after, I think it, it was two weeks of training in the gym. Uh, it usually takes me two weeks to get back in shape. And um, I couldn't lift, I couldn't get past like 40 pound dumbbells in each hand. 
I said, what the hell is wrong with me? So I went to my um, naturopathic doctor who studied in Chinese medicine. And he said, well, Brad, I got some good news and bad news. The bad news is you have the internal organs of an 86-year-old man just from stress. Wow. Seven years of stress. Wow. Taking a company public, um, being in, in magazines like the Wall Street Journal, pressure mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. destroyed my adrenal glands. The good news is over a two to three month period, he brought me back to about 26 years of age nice. and I was 38 at the time. And so <clears throat> pick up this book because I want you to not be stressed like Uncle Brad here. <laughs> I want you to be able to, and you're going to have a lot of fun reading it because Kareth is a hoot. You are funny. Thank um, you. And what was always so hysterical is when we travel on the road or we do stuff, uh, you're right. Everybody expected you to sound black, and you, oh, your, yeah. your joke was you, you sound like a Jewish American princess uh, from Long Island. You know, sometimes or the Jap, the <laughs> Jewish African American princess, the Jewish African American <laughs> princess uh, from Long Island, because you get on the phone and and people would not know anything. Not that you should, but it's just sort of like where you grew up it, it determines you know your accent and everything, and your mom's the same way. And it wasn't put on. And that's why I think a lot of people, like, there would be people waiting almost with bated breath for me to, like, change my accent and be like, psych, hey, yo, girl, what's up, bitches? Like, that's, like, I just, I can't even. (laughs) And that's why I got rejected for so many parts. Yeah, they're like, you don't don't sound like. And I I wouldn't do it. I I just, I refuse, just like with Imus. I would not, it wasn't comfortable for me. God to me, I, it was yeah. so inauthentic. And I get yeah. acting as acting, and, you know, there are certain, you know, characters and dialects and things, but I just, I didn't want to be part of a system that continued to portray black women in such a, a disgraceful and demeaning and stereotypical manner. Thank and you. And so I lost out in that respect. Yeah. But it's okay. Yeah. I'm okay with that. But you, you, you carved your own trail as far as I'm concerned. They talked about this on the OG uh, with Tracy, the last OG with Tracy Morgan. Um, it was hysterical because um, the wife who happens to be black and the, and the white husband, she calls up a moving company and she goes, I'm getting a white moving company. And she's all, you know, this, and then these black men show up and she goes, wait a minute, you know, and here the black man used the white voice and she used a white voice on the right, phone. Right, right. And, the, and these are little inside things that we as in the white community know nothing about. You know, right, it's like right. you, gotta, you use your white voice <laughs> in That's business funny. and then your black voice with friends. And I've had friends do that who are of color. They're, they're speaking one way to me and then all of a sudden we get with their friends like, yo, what's up, man? You know, and I'm like, who the hell am I standing next to? All of a sudden. They I it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, my ex-wife, I had people walk up to her and start talking to her like rappers, you know? And and she's like, pardonne-moi. You know, she she's very... Right, right. Excuse-moi. Yeah, pardonne-moi. You know, like, like, what? And, and then they keep going, and they realize she's not that kind of black woman. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's like so... And that's the thing. We've all been duped by what we have been fed as to this is yeah. what this person should sound like or act like or behave like yeah. you know, oh you can't be a black person and a conservative what yeah are you what you can't be gay and a republican what right. what like, yeah how dare you just because i am something doesn't mean and i'm not listen i am fiercely independent but how dare you try to put me into any kind of category yeah. based on my skin color or my gender 
or my religion or anything else. Well, we're breaking the stereotypes. That's what I love about this. Um, I have a lot of friends from Africa, and I was really concerned when they did the Black Panther, the first appearance of the Black Panther, to get the accent right. And I would know. You know me in accents. And when he's at the end of the movie, there's this great scene. He says, I thought I was going to kill the wrong man. And I went, oh, yes, nailed it. And he's nailed a British it. actor. And I was like, thank you. You know, they're, right. they're taking it serious. Because you look back in some of those movies in the 70s, and they just didn't care. They just oh, throw stuff together. Please. I mean, to this day, British people hate Dick Van Dyke's accent from Mary Poppins. <laughs> what accent is that? Where does he get it right, folks? And we're finally getting it right. Mary Poppins, where the hell is he from? You know, it's right, like right? there was no one over here. Well, it's so funny you say like that. that. We were at a, a social distancing graduation, yeah. kindergarten graduation party for my daughter. And I was trying to imitate my husband's Australian accent, and I sounded like. I should be a chimney sweep. <laughs> that is funny. I cannot do an Aussie accent to save my life. <laughs> well, I'm so into accents that I'll turn around and look at somebody and go, you're from New Zealand. And they're like, how did you know? You know, you know they, Kiwi. <laughs> yeah, or they'll, they'll just start saying like, hey, don't come and roll porn up me, mate. You're from Queensland, are you? And they're like, yeah, crikey, how did you know that? <laughs> I had Brian uh, Smith from Uggs on my show, and he's like, you know, Brad, it's a great, that is a great, question you know like, <laughs> like, damn. it's just so great to have brian smith just say stuff like that but I, can i just like say i love this show so much like i know you don't hear Thanks. me like i did not to brag on you but i'm gonna have a little fangirl moment because the people you have on the topics that you cover fascinating oh, and you. i really like I, this needs to just i mean you're going places, my friend. Thank I mean, you. obviously, you've had many successes in your past, but I, I just think this is so brilliant, and I, Thank I, you, I wish you continual success of this and nothing but growth and 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 a growing audience because it's you're awesome. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, my dear. I love you. Uh, we're gonna try and turn this into a TV show because I'd really like to um, do it, like almost in search of, you know, where we go into places and talk about things that nobody's talking about. Um, because, you know, th like this conversation right here, you know, um, I've, you know, to, to wrap some of this up real quick, by the way, I have purposely lived my life to not um, pander to people of color, but to stand and bring them in as equals, in, both in all the companies I've had. If you ask anybody who's ever worked with me who is not white, um, I make damn sure they're protected by certain things and they get their promotions, man, because they earned it. It isn't, you know, we're not, we're not sitting here. I think tokenism is an insult. Um, I, I want the very best people. And if you, that means you're Asian, Latino or black, you're the best. I want to work with the best period. That's just how I was raised. My mother, if she ever he heard me say ra anything racial, she would have smacked me and dragged me up the street I know some millennials don't understand what that is, but my mother would have grabbed me in the back of the Boom, boom. They would have smacked the hell out of me. Um, my grandfather was highly respectful of people. Uh, and one of the things that he would used to do is, uh, we didn't realize this, but I started to understand it as I got older. Never heard a racial slur from my grandfather, ever. And I realized why. <clears throat> 
during the 1930s and 40s to put food on the table because he was a young couple with my grandmother. He was a drummer and he played drums at country clubs and private parties. And so guess who else is playing trumpet, saxophone in these situations? Black men. And so this was the greatest history lesson for me. My grandfather knew everybody in town. And we would run into somebody all the time. It wasn't just people of color, but all kinds of people. And my grandfather would pull aside and you'd see this old man, you know, <laughs> with a baseball cap on, you know, dark skin out there with this, you know how they used to wear those jackets, you know, when they shuffle around, everybody wore them. My grandfather had one. And he'd be talking to him for 10 minutes and he'd walk back to us, the family, and go, that guy's a hell of a trumpet player. I worked with him back in 1958, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, Oh my God, my grandfather's a God. Nobody knows this. He knows everybody. And I'm going to tell you, Kareth, when my grandfather died, his 600 people showed up in a, small in a small town. 600 people showed up at my grandfather's wake, and we had a two-mile-long procession to the funeral, uh, to, you know, to the gravesite, and it was people from all over, from my hometown uh, there in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, is where my family is originally from. And he was not a rich man. He just cared about people. And I think I've picked up that gene from my grandfather and my mother. Just give a damn about people, period. It doesn't matter the color of their skin, their background, um, you know, things like this. And don't pander to people to try and prove you love them. Um, just be there for them. Just be like another human being to another human being. Um, that's life, man. That is life. And that's what people really want right now from this movement. You know, it's not like they're saying black lives matter more than yours. And I think it's, I mean, it just doesn't sound right to say black lives matter too. I mean, I, I don't want this movement to have the adverse effect where people think, well then, you know, and I kind of see it going this way, which, which frightens me a bit. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, black people just want to be on equal footing. We just want to be treated like human beings. And listen, there are yeah. good people and bad people of every ethnicity, of every, you know, gender right. and, and religion. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it, we yeah. just, it's not about special treatment. It's about just being considered a fellow human being who's worthy yeah. um, and, and who's valued. I think it starts with the people. I don't think it starts with the government. And I, and I want to call on people to not let your legislators start doing stupid things because mm -hmm. they are going to pander for votes. Mm -hmm. We as individuals have to cross the line and hug each other, go out to dinner with each other, have a beer together, talk to each other, be real friends. You know, when you come to my house, I have people from all backgrounds and it ain't two, you know me, Gareth, it ain't two friends. It's a lot of people from all over who's, English is their second and third language a lot right. of times. Right. And I, it's, I guess I'm just weird. I love that. I think it's the spice of life. It's part of maybe my Hungarian side where, you know, we had spice, spicy food every single freaking day. So I'm looking for spicy food, not bland everyday stuff. So in New York, I was in my element, man, because I feel like, ooh, there's a, there's a, you know, a Cajun place or there's some Thai, right, you know. Right, right. Um, uh, but yeah, oh, Haitian, if you've never been to a Haitian restaurant, they make spicy fish. Mm. Spicy fish with the rice and beans. Ooh, I could get fat just sitting here talking about it. 
So we do a lightning round on my show. I don't know if Ooh. you have a little. Yay, more I do. Minutes. I have a few more minutes. And by the way, uh, those of you who haven't seen the video part of this, uh, Kareth looks stunningly gorgeous today in a red dress, and she has her hair long and down with um, earrings and everything. You're all gussied up like you're going on. Uh, Listen, on hey. Fox, Fox and Friends. Listen, this is who I am, right? I'm going to give you the best of me, too. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, we've hung out and had some great conversations through the years. This is what I love about you. And when I finally got to meet Craig, you know, he puts a crick in my neck as I look up at, to him. He is, <laughs> he is a tall guy. If he you've is never a very met, tall man. And what's you... funny is he he got mad at me. So we met online. Okay. Really? And we did. I don't know if you knew this. And I I on the I he responded to my post. I said, you know, sweet Southern Belle looking for a Southern gentleman. And either he's really funny or he's kind of just a, you know, a, a, a smart aleck. But he's like, well, I'm Southern. I'm from the Southern Hemisphere. So he reached out. I love it. That's and awesome. He, he's like, he gets mad at me that I'm not taller. I go, I said I was 5'4". He goes, well, I'm 6'4". He goes, I just thought you were taller. I go, it's, listen, I carry myself like a 5'6". You get, you get what you get, brother. Most you people got have the, no idea how short I am because they you just got the, taller. You got the best. You got the exactly. best. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. Well, Craig is really great because we get along. We think uh, alike. You know, if you've met Australian men, they don't, they don't think along certain lines. And I've always appreciated that. A few of my Australian friends, we just, we get along uh, great because, you know, in their country, men are men and women are women. And, you know, they, and they, they don't have a filter. Like they, there is no, no filter. We were, we were at a party once. All the women were American and all the guys were Australian. And one of the wives was like, well, I don't know what to do. He just says whatever comes to his head. Like, and it's, yeah. sometimes it's embarrassing. Oh, they say whatever's on their mind. And yeah. everyone went down like, oh my God, mine does too. Mine does too. Like, cause we, and then we realized it wasn't like an individual. It's a, it's a cultural thing. It's an Australian thing. thing. Yes, it's it just, is. You know, they, they will call well, each other the see you next Tuesdays and it's like dork over here, you know? Yeah. Well, um, all my friends who are Australian, like, like one of my buddies, Wayne, we, um, we worked together for a year before we, we kind of talked to each other because a bunch of people um, said, he don't trust him, he's this or that. And here it turns out they said the same about me. And we were at a Christmas party and everybody left and he and I are sitting there. And this is a year of working together side by side. Right. And we started talking and we started talking about the martial arts. And then we started talking about this and that. And I would joke with him because he was a red belt in judo and competed in all these tournaments. And then he, he was also a master dive instructor. And I said, so let me ask you this. Do you own like a Bronco too? You know, it's like, how, how manly can you get? He goes, hey, no, I, I, I owned a Jimmy. You know, I just sold it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like holy crap so i was at his wedding you know we get along uh, handsomely but his wife would say to me he goes oh my god you know she's she is the second or third generation uh from a jewish family that was holocaust survivors wow. so she's very you know conservative very you know structured and she would come to me she goes i don't know what to do with wayne because he will just say whatever's on his mind <laughs> Welcome to my world, girlfriend. I said, well, I said, well, he's Australian. They don't care. They eat steak. Uh, the, you know, the, the, any, any uh, studies on cholesterol escape them. They go mountain uh, climbing and motocross biking, even if they're 80. Uh, Brian, 
Brian Smith from Uggs, he still plays rugby. And he's like, I think he's 80. And he's surfing every day. And I'm like, dude. It's like, oh, Brad, I love being out in a surf. You know, (laughs) you're just like, that's how I want to go out. (laughs) You know, just surfing or skiing or whatever. Yeah. So... Uh, so we're going to do the lightning round. I get, we all, we get off on tangents here. So I'm going to ask you a question mm-hmm. and you do your best to answer it. Three questions okay. that help the audience get to know you better. Number one, what's your favorite memory? Oh, my favorite memory is being a little kid. I'm talking like three, four years old in Denver, Colorado and watching the sunset behind the Rocky Mountains. And I remember these the colors. It was like orange and pink and purple and blue and the white clouds. And I just remember thinking, those are colors only God could make. I didn't have the words for it, but I just that was the the overwhelming feeling. Wow. That's a great, great memory. Second question. What do you love to do that maybe we don't know that you do? Hmm. I would say I love to do it. I was just thinking, like, what I need to release. Sometimes I'll play, like, I'm not into video games, that kind of stuff, but I will play, like, the Candy Crush a little bit just to decompress. Like, it's totally, like, a zen thing for me. Yeah. Um, I I love to I, – I actually love to bake. I love to bake really? with my children. I'm kind of this, like – like, part of me is, like, this really kind of, like, executive professional – and then part of me is like Susie Homemaker. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're so great with your daughters. It's really funny to watch. And now that you're down in Plano, you know, they're hanging out with grandma, right? Yeah. Uh, we get to spend time with my mom and my dad, which is so uh, great. Because I didn't grow up with my grandparents. They lived way on the other side of the country. And actually, my all of my girls, I had three grandfathers, even a step-grandfather. And yeah. they all passed before I was old enough to have a relationship with them. So um, for my girls to be able to have that with my parents, because my husband's family is in Australia. So, you know, that's really important for me. That is. Um, And your daughters are so precious. They are the perfect combination of you and Craig. Um, And I'm shocked you just don't scream at them sometimes because they are such free spirits. (laughs) And every time (laughs) we're on the phone doing business or we're doing something, it's just like, Mommy is on the phone right now, and I can see you like holding your breath, <laughs> like you really want to lose no, it. No, see, you don't understand. So I, what's really funny is my girls will be like, "Mommy, why are you so nice in the beginning of the day, and then at nighttime you're so mean?" <laughs> it's like because you have worn me down. You were, I have one nerve left by the end of the night, and you were on it. <laughs> <laughs> Child rearing. In oh this day God. and age, is very different. Oh my father God. would have smacked me, and that would have been the end of it. You, we uh, behaved my generation. Now it's sort of like they start I, up every time we get on the phone, to, and uh-huh. we're talking business. We're not t- dealing with right. you know fun stuff. They that's when they start to act up. They come in, they're doing stuff. Oh my God! Well, it, they're so funny. Like it, it's hard to be mad at them because yeah. they're really friggin' funny kids. I mean, a I'm, their mom's a comedian, their dad's Australian. They really don't have a choice in the matter. But like, so, you know, we, rec- we rescued these rabbits that were left in our yes. backyard. I remember you know, this. The saga. Sadly, yeah. we did, the last one passed away. We found him in the pool. It was, uh, I'm heartbroken. I still haven't really like processed it. 
But anyway, I, we were debating you. I'm like, do we leave them out there, like, for nature to take its course? Do we bring them? And Craig's like, listen, the mom's not here. We got to step the fuck up and take. And so I thought my child was asleep, right, on, on our bed. And all of a sudden, she shoots up out of what I thought was. She's like, that's right. All in favor of stepping the fuck up, say aye. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> You can't talk like that. You're seven. But it was really, I mean, it was just so, but you can't let them know how hysterical they are. Like, that's the hardest thing. <laughs> if you let them know, they will become little comedians in the house and do oh even God. worse damage. Yeah. Oh when I was little, my mom used to tell the story. My grandfather used to have these little cocktail parties at the house and he had a bar built into the basement. So being a musician, these are all like musicians and they would start playing. And so when you're little, you can't get any attention in the room. Well, I evidently, I don't remember this. I think I was three. I ran out into the middle of this butt naked and I went, yabba-dabba-doo, <laughs> and, and, and shimmied and then ran back to my room. And the, everybody, that was my first big laugh. Nice. nice. <laughs> that was, there you go. That was it. From and you just one. stopped running into rooms naked, right? Like yeah, I, I shuffle now <laughs> with black socks on and nothing else. I know that's a scary image, but I know you know it because I bet Craig does it. Oh, my God. This quarantine, you don't understand. The things I say most around quarantine are, where are your pants? Where are your pants? I say Australia, this to everyone in my household. Australian men, man. Everyone in my household. All my buddies are there. My buddy, Greg Reeves, we all had to share a room because we were all on a budget at a hotel. Six of us in a hotel room. Greg insists he has to sleep naked. Yeah. Okay, Greg. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I swear to God. Yeah, Australian men, it just, you, look, brother, put some clothes on. Like, he was like, but why? Why? This is how I sleep and all the time. And his girlfriend is a good friend of mine, Hillary. She's like, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> it's like, I don't need to see your junk in the middle of winter. <laughs> okay, thanks, buddy. Now I can just burn my eyes out. So I got one more question for you before yes, we close sir. this episode. When you leave this world, what do you want to be known for? I want to be known for being someone who did everything they could to bring people together. Like, there's no question in my mind that that's, that's just why I was put on this planet. To make that's people awesome. realize that all the stuff we think separates and divides us is, is nonsense. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, Kareth Foster. Uh, pick up her new book, You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy. Uh, it is a great read, uh, and it'll give you some practical advice on how to lighten up and get a life. Uh, and also, how do we get a hold of you? We should go to your website, right? Absolutely. Kareth.com. Fortunately, there are not many Kareths in the world. I spell it K-A-R-I-T-H. And most of my handles are at Kareth Foster, like Australian for beer. Yeah, it's, it's right. Australian for beer. You have to be a certain age to get that reference. Everybody else is like, what? I say that in it's true. like, what? It's so true. <laughs> and uh, you have to be a certain age to have all these commercials em emblazoned in your brain. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you, Kareth, for being on Awakened Nation, my dear. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in next week, and we're going to have another awesome guest. Reach out to Kareth, show her some love, and thank you, and take care.
Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.